Good morning. If you'll uh, turn in your Bibles, open up your device or your worship folder uh, to Esther 2, 2 through 18. This is our scripture reading for today. Uh, it says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was, bring, he was bringing up Hadassah, that, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king Asaharis after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period, period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices, and ointments for women. When the young woman, woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and, was summoned by, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Azaharis into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. And so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back in here. We, we uh, had a couple of uh, 
couple of weeks where we missed Esther, and so now we're back into Esther. And so just, just to make it seem right, what we notice here is that from chapter 1 to chapter 2, there's a four-year span. So the, the thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Vashti and the fact that uh, the king made very unwise decisions and that he was putting himself on the throne of his own heart and feeling like he deserved whatever he wanted and how we can operate in that way, that is four years ago. And now we're to a place where after fighting a battle and coming back, his men see that he's lonely. They see that he is sullen and they say, we need to find him another woman. Uh, And so how are we going to do that? As we step into this passage, have you heard the phrase, uh, hindsight is 2020? Have you heard that phrase? Hindsight is 2020. It means that from, if we go ahead, if we look back, we have 2020 vision. We can see the, the places that there were mistakes that were made or the places that we should have gone. And so hindsight is 2020. Let me give you a for instance, maybe, of what hindsight is 2020. I probably should have chosen to become a fan of the West Coast Eagles. <laughs> instead of the Fremantle Dockers, if I wanted to actually be able to have a team towards the end of the season that had a chance of going to the grand final. But because I thought unwisely that I was moving to Fremantle so I should become a fan of the Fremantle doctors, Dockers, then they need doctors, uh, Dockers, then, you know, that's what I should do. Now that's hindsight's 2020. Clearly, bad decision. <laughs> this is what happens when we enter into this passage, especially for those of us who are familiar with the story at all. Now, this might be the first time you're hearing this story, and so let me just say to you, it's wild. We recognize that it's wild and crazy. It doesn't really make sense. We, we're like, now are you sure you're reading from the Bible? Is that really where we're at, right? So let me say that. But for those of us who are familiar with the story, it's hard for us in our minds to not have 2020 vision in hindsight because we've read the story. Right? We know what's going on and that God in his sovereignty and his providence is working stuff out in order to save his people. But if we just stop in chapter 2 and we take it for what it is, it's very difficult. It, we look at it and we're not sure what actually is going on in this story. And I think what it brings out for us is there's a sense of fallenness that is here that we're going to look at. There's a a sense of favor that we need to kind of understand. And then there's faithfulness that's present. So let's talk a little bit about that fallenness that we see in this story that Andy read for us today. So the king is depressed. His men say, let's get you some women. And they send out this sort of edict across all of his land that says, go find the the most beautiful women, the, the good looking women. Go find those women that would please the king to his eyes and let's gather them up and let's bring them in. This is not the bachelor. This is not a beauty contest. This is not something that is kind, right? The king is abducting girls to bring them in to audition for him by having sex in one night. The only thing that he's concerned about, and not just him, but the men around him 
are concerned about are not whether they're compliant women, although you would think that they would want that, seeing as Vashti, the reason why we're in this situation, was not compliant. We talked a couple of weeks ago that she was wise, <laughs> right? Why would you put yourself in a situation with a group of drunk men? There was wisdom in that. It wasn't the fact that she had good character. You would think that a king would want a queen that had good character, somebody he could trust, somebody he could rely on. See, he believed that he had men to do that for him. These men who said, you need a good-looking woman. So the only criteria really that we see is that they are attractive. And so we see fallenness right away. That the king and his men are only focused on external things. Their desire is only for surfaceness. And that shows the fallenness. We can go right back to when sin and brokenness entered the world with Adam and Eve. When they looked at the apple or the pear or the mango or whatever fruit it was and said, it looks good to my eyes. It will make me like God. I surely won't die. Fallenness enters in and it's a surface thing. It's not understanding the ramifications that take place when we sin. Now, not only do we see that fallenness within the king in the way that he is pursuing this, we also see it in fallenness in the fact that Mordecai and Esther are still there. You see, why are they in exile? Well, they're in exile because the Jewish nation were rebellious towards God. And God allowed them to be taken captive as a discipline. They had turned to other gods. They began to worship other things. They had thought God was not trustworthy or worthy to be praised. And so they went and looked at other things. And so they were taken captive and brought out of their land, out of the promised land, and put into exile. Now, if you look a couple of books over in Ezra, we recognize that King Cyrus had sent folks home. said, go back to Jerusalem. Go back to that place. Now there's a sense that they could have gone as well, but they didn't. We know that they've probably been there for a couple of different generations. And so there's fallenness that we see in the Jewish nation, that they themselves had abandoned God, and that's why they're in this situation to begin with. What other fallenness maybe do we see? And it's never fun to look at fallenness, right? because it begins to make us think maybe about our own fallenness. Now Esther's an interesting portrayal here because there's a way for us to look at this and say, in fact, she's taken by force and she's put into a place. But we also recognize that for some reason she's not being distinctive in her Jewishness. Now she's hiding it and for some reason nobody knew that that was the case even when they brought her in. And so in some ways, what we can assume here is that she's not living according to the Torah, that she's probably not going to the synagogue, that she's been acclimated and assimilated into the culture around her, that she maybe didn't look different than those other girls. And so she had not made herself separate or apart in that way. We later know that Mordecai somehow had done that. But for some reason, he tells Esther, hide your true identity. Don't show it. 
And so what we have is a group of people that in their fallenness have not only stayed in their fallenness, they've become assimilated into the culture around them. They've allowed it to seep in and to change the way that they're living. And we ourselves rest in that place, don't we? There are little things that have happened in our lives or places where we know that we are allowing that assimilation to happen. That God calls us to worship him and him alone. But for some reason, our little emperor me inside of our heart says, no, worship me and do what I want. And in doing that, we begin to find compromises in the way that we live in the world. And sometimes those look very externally, but most often than not, those external things are down deep in our own hearts. So why it might be that we don't value relationships, we would never say that. But we don't value relationships in the fact that if a relationship breaks, we don't feel like we need to pursue that. We can just let it go because relationships are passing and fleeting anyway, and they're only for a time because that's really how we've been assimilated. Where God says, know that every relationship I bring into your life, every place, there needs to be restoration and reconciliation. And you move into those places together. But see, our own little emperor hearts say, no, no, I think I'll be okay without them. It'll be better. And so as we look at this and we look at where Esther is at, we recognize the fact that all throughout this story, and in particular here, we see this fallenness that is rampant in our lives and in the world. So, Esther gets taken from Mordecai, who quickly says, please don't tell them that you're a Jew. And she goes in and she's brought to this place with the head eunuch who takes care of all the women. And she finds favor with him. So much so that that eunuch says, I like you a lot. And so I'm going to give you the best makeup and the best food and the best women. And I'm going to elevate you up into the harem. I'm going to protect you in a sense. Now think about this. It could be anywhere between 400 to 1,000 women maybe or more that were gathered in. That's the estimates that different commentators say. I don't want to speak about gender things or I don't want to talk about stereotypes of women or men or anything like that. But I have four daughters and I've watched them try to get along in a house. How tough that must have been. And then think about this. They're all taken. Now maybe for some reason some were taken and they realized, hey, I get to be in the king's harem. I might not get picked. This is great. My life will be one of leisure and I'll get put in the second harem and I might get called again and, and I'll just be fine. Some probably recognize that all their dreams of their life and how they wanted to live are smashed immediately. They'll never happen. And so they've got to be disappointed and they've got to feel anger about it. And we have Esther, who the Bible clearly says was taken. So we can assume she didn't want to go. But for some reason, when she gets there, she moves into a place of favor. And in this, and the Hebrew word that is used there for favor is not sort of this spiritual favor. It's actually that she worked to gain favor. 
She worked to, to make herself known, but not really, <laughs> in order to gain the favor that she received. And so what happens is she begins this life in this harem and the Mordecai stayed outside and he always was paying attention and he was wanting to make sure she was doing okay. Now check out this beauty treatment that these women go through for one night. A year. A year. You talk about really being worried about the important things. I need you to smell nice. I need you to feel nice. I need you to look good. I don't care about your mind. I don't care about your character. I don't care about your heart. You just need to smell nice, feel good, and look good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to dip you in oil for six months. I'm going to let myrrh and all sorts of incense. I'm going to let aromas wash over you. I'm going to take care of you. And because what's most important is your external look. And then when you come to meet me, you can bring anything you want, one thing only from the palace, anything that you want. Now, here's what's going to happen to the ladies that come in. They're going to be unwilling participants, really, most of them, with the king and have sex with him. And then they will either not please the king and they'll be sent to the other harem where they'll never be called again. So they're abandoned taken care of or they will be sent to the other harem where maybe they pleased him a little bit and he will call them maybe again but if for some reason they become pregnant their children are never seen as heirs as a matter of fact they're only brought up to serve the king usually in a higher position but that's it the third option for these women is that they might actually get married and become part of the concubine these wives. And that just means that they have a little bit more tenure. And only one will replace Vashti and become queen. All of them get to choose something. Some people think that they got to keep that thing when they went. So maybe they chose some gold or maybe they chose a robe or maybe they chose something that was important to them. But what we recognize here is because Esther was seeking to find favor and found favor and had been raised up, she listens to the eunuch and says, what do you think I should take to the king? What's the one thing that you know will help me find favor with him. And he gives her advice, and she takes it. And what happens? It says, now, when her turn came, she went in with what he had told her to take, and she was winning favor in the eyes of, who does it say? All who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, she took what he wanted, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen, of, queen instead of Vashti. Then he does this. Then he also gave a great feast. He likes those feasts, doesn't he? For all his servants and officials. And he named it after her. You talk about finding favor. Named it after her. 
And then he also granted the remission of taxes to all the provinces and gave gifts from royal generosity. So now, who does she have favor with? This queen who now has a feast named after her, who has allowed all the taxes to be canceled and all sorts of gifts. Aren't all people now cheering for her? It makes me think of the princess bride. Right? When the queen buttercup comes out and there's this little woman who says, boo, boo, because she's trash, because she's given up on true love. I feel like we're kind of caught there a little bit because here's Esther who's gained favor for everybody. But in the back of our minds, there's something about us that go, boo, like, what are you doing? There's an important thing for us to recognize as we engage with the world. There are times where we are called, like Daniel or Joseph or Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, where we step in and we are confrontational or where we are a place to rub against. But there are also times where we are to search for favor. And it's hard for us to reconcile that and know when it is that we need to do that. So the key is maybe what we see happen just after this, this portion of scripture that we did not read, where Mordecai, who's been sitting outside of the gates and paying attention to what's going on with Esther, hears about two eunuchs who want to kill the king. Now doesn't that, if, if it's your niece your cousin who you raised as your daughter, who's now had to go through this traumatic experience, wouldn't it be great to get even with him? And so instead of telling him that somebody's trying to kill you, you just kind of set back and let it happen. But what does Mordecai do? It tells us that he warned him. That he made sure that the king knew and he did that through Esther. And Esther said, Mordecai told me. You see, there's a place where we have to move into blessing those that are around us in order for them to still have an opportunity to experience God and his love. It's hard for us to know. I mean, really, poor, poor Esther. Right? Hindsight's 2020 for us. And in fact, it's really interesting when you read commentaries and when you look at the story of Esther all throughout, she is really between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, Tim Keller, when he talks about Esther, he says, look, she loses on every spectrum when we see chapter two. I, I, I want to use some terms and I don't want them to be pejorative for you. I don't want them to be negative for you, but I want them to be identifying for you. So fundamentalists who would look at Esther, in particularly in chapter 2, or those of us Orthodox Jews who would look at this, they really try to rewrite the story because they don't like the fact that she's been assimilated. They don't like the fact that she marries a pagan uncircumcised king. They don't like the fact that she's had sex before marriage. They don't like the fact that she's eaten food that she shouldn't eat that she's not gone to temple, that she's not... Work I mean, she's a heathen. She might as well just be a pagan herself. 
But then there are those who maybe of a more liberal persuasion or, or feminist persuasion who would say, why didn't she stand up? What was her problem? She had an opportunity to assert feminine, masculine, uh, feminine um, power empowerment. She had the ability to say, yes, women deserve their rights. She had won favor among all of the eunuchs. She seemed to have power. Why didn't she do that? And the reality is, at this point in time, we can't look at Esther's heart and say, maybe she was compliant because she's manipulative. And she kind of thought maybe God was doing something. And she, she thought to herself, I've got to do my best to get into a power of position because clearly this guy's weak. All I've ever seen happen to this king is other people manipulate him. And so maybe I can get into a place where I can manipulate him for God's good. Ooh, that's dangerous territory. Sometimes don't we think, oh, I know better what God is doing, and so I will work to try and manipulate and get to that place. Or maybe she was just going along. And what we see here happening is this woman who's living her life in a place where circumstances and events are outside of her control. And they're just carrying her forward to its inevitable end. And don't we ourselves feel that way at times? That our lives are just filled with circumstances and relationships and places where we just seem to be carried along until it's inevitable end? And we become hopeless and think to ourselves, we actually have no control at all. As a matter of fact, there is nobody who has control of this and we're just leading towards destruction or slavery or bondage. The beauty is hindsight's 2020. And for us, for those of us who recognize that even though God is not mentioned in this book, He is ever present, we see His faithfulness moving. We know the story and we know that Esther needs to become queen so that she can have a conversation with the king. We know that even though Mordecai now saves and then the king forgets, at least he's written it down. We know that Mordecai, for whether it is for pure reasons or unpure reasons, as we'll see next week, doesn't bow down to Haman and it sets all sorts of things going forward. We know that God needs to save his people and that he is working in this story behind the scenes, silently in His faithfulness to care for them because He is pursuing them relentlessly in His love. So, what? <laughs> well, what it means for us and maybe what we can take away from this little part of Esther's life is we can recognize, knowing that God is faithful, that our past and our things that we look at and maybe regret don't define us at all. That it's not the surface things in our life that give us credibility or even help us find favor. But it is in fact the very part of us that God made, and that's all of us, that He has poured Himself into 
It is about His pursuit and knowing that He loves us and that He has made us in His image and with the potential of being not just an image bearer, but a son or daughter of the Most High God. That we can look back with 2020 vision and see God's faithfulness reminding us that whether we want to look at Esther as somebody who was complicit and assimilated fully and didn't care, or someone who was pushed along by the circumstances in our life to really tragic circum- uh, outcomes, what we recognize is it didn't define who she was. Because when we think about Esther, when we talk about Esther, we talk about the great, courageous, dignified queen, the one who stepped forward to bring salvation to her people. But here we don't. So maybe you're stuck there today. Maybe that's where you're at right now in your life. That it just seems like things keep going wrong. That it just seems like I can't make the right decision. That it seems like the addiction that I thought I'd overcome keeps coming back and grabbing me. Or those relationships that I wanted to see repaired didn't get fully repaired and so they're fractured yet again. Maybe there's something in your past that you've never really let known to anyone else and it's the thing that gets whispered in your ear that says, no, no, you're not who you think you are. Listen, God says, I made you in my image. I'm calling and pursuing you to make me, make you my child. That those things that you think are defining you, that those sins that you so easily want to go back to, and maybe not go back to to commit, but you go back to to remember, those things are not the things that have you. I am working my plan for you. I know where I want you to go and that I myself have become your unrighteousness so that you can be righteous. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for Esther. Thank you that she's broken and fallen and hurt. Thank you that she is either captive or complicit. It doesn't matter because what we know is that that is not her definition. It is you and what you do through her and in her and your love for her. Father, allow us to work and find the places of favor where we need to find favor. Give us the places of conflict or or, or confrontation where we need that. Give us wisdom and how to walk that way. Let us recognize our fallenness, but recognize your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.